Comic Book Time Machine, Episode 47, Marvel-licensed sci-fi comic books, cover dated December 1977, including Star Wars, Godzilla, Human Fly, John Carter, Warlord of Mars, and Crazy. Hello, time travelers. It's Ben, Ben Avery, and I am here to talk about Marvel comics from the 70s. You're going to set your time machine coordinates to September of 1977 because we're going to buy some comics that are cover dated December of 1977. You know how this works as we take the time machine back in time and look at the comic spinner racks or at the uh, the magazine racks at the you know five and dime or the stop shop. That's where I used to go back and get my comics back in the late 70s, the, the stop shop. It was spelled with uh, two P's and an E on both stop and shop, if I remember correctly. If I don't remember correctly, I doubt that uh, anyone's going to care because really, I really sincerely doubt that someone from Sundridge, Ontario is going to be listening to this podcast, let alone someone from Sundridge, Ontario is going to be listening to this podcast and remembering, oh, how did they spell stop shop? He's totally wrong. No, they're they're not going to do that because, you know, people don't do that kind of thing when they have other things to do with their lives. But um, <clears throat> anyway, I'm I'm here to talk about these comics, and you know how it works. Uh, we're going back. We're looking. We're not. Look. We're we're skipping over Spider-Man. We're skipping over Superman. We're skipping over you know those traditional superhero things, and we are only buying as we go back in time the comic books that were licensed by Marvel Comics that were sci-fi and that were concurrent with Star Wars, which means we are not going to be talking about Tarzan. We're not going to be talking about uh, Conan. Now, with this series, we did go back a little further to talk about 2001 and John Carter. John Carter started the month before Star Wars. Uh, I'm so glad that I allowed for that. And really, it comes down to... uh, (laughs) A pretty simple thing, and that is, if I were to try and do this with Conan and Tarzan, first of all, I would never be able to stop. I mean, those went on for hundreds of issues. Well, Conan anyway, Tarzan not so much. But the other thing is, if I add too many more books to the list of books that I've already got, you know, planned month by month, uh, because that's the other thing we're doing is we're looking at each of these things month by month. So today. It's September 1977, the Marvel license books from that month. If we were doing that and we added in Conan and added in Tarzan, uh, man, this episode would be, you know, eight hours long. Well, maybe not that, but uh, now the way this also works is I pull out, um, I have a comics long box that I will pull out a bag, a, uh, a comics uh, poly, poly bag and inside that bag is some comics and a little slip of paper that tells me what books we're looking at this month because some of them, I mean, 
this little peek behind the curtain, people, um, we don't actually have a working time machine. What we do is instead we use other things at our disposal to be able to read these comics. So for this month, I have two omnibuses that I'm reading from, uh, a Marvel Essential that I'm reading from, and I also have the, the actual issue that I'm reading from. So what am I reading this month? Well, this month I'm reading Star Wars number 6, the final chapter in the movie adaptation. It was on sale September 13th, 1977. Cover price, 35 cents. Crazy, number 32. Why? Well, I'll tell you in a few moments, but uh, it was something when I saw it, it wasn't originally on my list, but when I was going through and reading through all these things, I did check out Mike's Amazing World of Comics to find out the details, like the release date and the cover price, and I noticed the cover to Crazy Number 32, and I thought to myself, well, that looks like a Marvel-licensed sci-fi tie-in I, it wasn't actually licensed because it was it was a parody, uh, so they didn't have to license that. But you know what? It's Marvel. It ties in with what we're talking about, so I went for it. Was I glad that I went for it? Well, we'll find that out later. Godzilla number five is the epic conclusion to the two part story, The Isle of Lost Monsters, from September sixth of uh 1977 cover price again 35 cents human fly number four again uh conclusion to what happened uh, started last month uh cover date was december but the the release date was september 6th 1977 also cover price 35 cents and then john carter warlord of mars number seven which is just basically continuing a fantastic run the question is, of course, does it live up to the run? Is this the first misstep with John Carter, Warlord of Mars? Because John Carter, Warlord of Mars, did not last as long as Star Wars. There must be a reason for that. I don't know what the reason is. We'll find out as we get later in the book. But frankly, I cannot believe how good John Carter, Warlord of Mars, is. And it has sustained it well over this time. There's been some nitpicks here and there and some... You know, things that just happened for plot's sake because we needed to get one character removed from the scene or we needed to get another character, you know, back into the story. And so there's plot conveniences that happen. But overall, it's pretty, pretty fantastic. But before we start talking about those things, those those comics here, uh, I do want to give a shout out and a thank you. Uh, I got a mysterious envelope in the mail and there was no name with the return address. Uh, so my my kids were all excited and curious, and my wife was a little concerned. And uh, I opened up the package, and this is why I love podcasting, frankly. I, I should say this is one of the reasons why I love podcasting. Uh, you know, with my Welcome to Level 7 podcast about Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., Marvel Cinematic Universe, we did do something with Howard the Duck, and I've mentioned talk a few times that i really wish i could read the howard the duck novelization someone sent it to me that's pretty fun that's pretty cool and a similar thing happened this time i opened the envelope and there were two comic books inside now you may remember how i said i'd love to see godzilla number three in color because that's the issue where it's godzilla versus the champions in san francisco and the champions consist of some of my favorite characters, uh, Hercules. I love the Marvel Hercules. I think it's a cool character. Iceman and Angel, who are both from my favorite uh, lineup of the X-Men. And it has 
a full page splash where Hercules just throws Godzilla by the foot and and flips him over onto his back and it's audacious it's big crazy fun storytelling I enjoy it and sure enough that was one of them and then also Godzilla number 12 was in there and so yeah I wow this was really fun to open up now I did eventually track down who this person was that sent it to me it wasn't some random person listening to this podcast who somehow got my address through nefarious means or by asking Daniel or something Uh, it was actually my friend Steve and so I do want to say publicly now I've done it already privately but publicly thanks Steve and when I get to issue number 12 I'll get to read it in color and actually maybe even read from the letters page uh, unlike what I usually do with with Godzilla which is with from the essential edition which again something I, I I like that I have the essential edition for me you know, that was a really cheap way to get a hold of all those books. I did find a run of all the Godzilla comics uh, that I could have uh, if I had a hundred bucks to, to throw down on it. And I just don't have a hundred dollars to throw down on, on something that I already own most of. I just, it, it'd be for color and for letters pages. And I'm not going to do that. So, anyway, the question is how do these books stand up? We are concluding three different storylines and we're continuing another. That is a continuation of a fantastic, fantastic run. So let's find out and let's get on to the comics. So here we are at part one of the podcast, Star Wars number six, which is the final chapter in the movie adaptation. Uh, And it actually is called, the title of this issue is The Final Chapter. So how well does it wrap things up? Well, I I, I will say this very quickly. I I do understand what they're facing here as they're facing down the final issue of this story. And that is as when you're adapting one thing into another thing, especially when you're adapting one thing into another thing that has limitations like time run, you know, the running time for a movie or for a TV show or page count for a comic book. I've done this. This is actually kind of the backbone of my career is adapting from, you know, things from one thing to another thing, usually comics. And in doing that, I have had a few projects. In fact, the project I'm finishing up right now is an adaptation. I'm on the final leg. I've been writing it as we've been going along the art for almost well, the art, the art for 75% of the project is done, can't be changed. So here I am in writing the final two chapters, and if I can't fit what I need to fit into these final two chapters, I can't just say, oh, I'll just take something out earlier. No, I have to find how do I compress it now. And that is something that they kind of were facing down here. I don't know how extreme... They were. I don't know how far ahead they really had plotted out to find to, to know exactly what they were doing, but um, I can totally relate to being in that situation. So, how well then do they do? Roy and uh, Howard, Roy Thomas and Howard Chaykin pace things out. Well, we'll get to that in a second. But first, I want to talk about the cover because you know the cover contains one of those classic scenes you know just like issue number five had a super classic scene of when you remember when the death star was bearing down on the planet and shooting at you know the people and 
uh, Han Solo was telling them it's too late, they're finished. Well, this is another one where it's just this really fantastic scene from the climax of the movie. You remember, it's when Luke Skywalker got out his lightsaber and it was red and he was fighting against Darth Vader with his own lightsaber on this pink and orange planetscape while Princess Leia cowered in the corner of the cover and spaceships were fighting overhead. And it promises, it says, See, Luke Skywalker battle Darth Vader! At last, the soul-shattering climax? <laughs> soul-shattering climax? I... I Okay. Uh, yeah, and then Darth Vader. Today you die, Luke Skywalker. This is your final battle. Uh, I've got issues with this cover. It's not... Uh, obviously, I'm being sarcastic about this being my favorite scene from the movie because, well, frankly, it doesn't ever happen in the movie. Luke Skywalker doesn't use a lightsaber as a weapon in this first movie. He never has a chance to. Uh, There is some small indication of a space battle. This entire comic is just one long space battle and then a tag scene at the end. Almost, you know, 80% of this story that you have in this comic takes place in space. But they give us this, I guess, metaphorical conflict between luke skywalker and darth vader (laughs) so yeah one of my favorite scenes because i wish it had happened you know little four-year-old benji avery wanted to see luke skywalker and darth vader cross lightsabers and did so with his little action figures with the sliding lightsaber that would come out of luke skywalker's hand and would come out of darth vader's hand and they had one on obi-wan kenobi as well I wanted that to happen, so I made it happen. But this cover is pretty ridiculous uh, when it comes down to portraying what actually happens inside. Unless you're going to make the case that it's metaphorical. I'm not making the case because it's not metaphorical. This is just meant to sell comics, and and maybe it did. Maybe it did. Maybe people thought they were going to see some sort of you know different ending. I don't know. I doubt it, but... Um, yeah, so as far as the plot that happens in this comic, um, spoilers for the end of this story. Uh, last issue ended with the uh, X-Wings and Y-Wings flying through space because they're going to confront the Death Star and destroy it. Well, we pick up right at that moment with this one. Uh, they attack. Luke uses the Force, blows up the Death Star, and they have an awards ceremony. So that's the plot of... Issue 6 of Star Wars, the final chapter. And actually, the, the title of the the chapter is actually, Is This the Final Chapter? with a, a question mark. But uh, Examining the story, there's a lot of text. And there is a lot of expositional dialogue. And I'll be honest, there's too much for me. There is too much in this issue. And it's not because I'm not used to it. I mean, I am used to having lots of captions. I still read comics that have lots of captions. And honestly, I write comics that sometimes have lots of captions. But here, I there's, there's moments here where there's just too much, too many words. 
uh, just let the pictures tell the story. You don't have to explain every single thing, and you don't have to use your flowery language to explain every little thing. And Roy Thomas does a good job of adaptation, and there's some interesting dialogue that gets thrown in there, which I'll, I'll mention in a moment. But uh, what saves this, what saves this from having, if we had the art from issue five and issue four with all this expositional dialogue and captioning, I don't think I would be nearly as forgiving. And I don't want to play my hand too soon, but I'm, I'm, it's probably going to happen. So I'm just not going to worry about it and not try and keep it a secret. If it comes out, it comes out about was this successful to me because the artwork, it saves this issue. The artwork is actually pretty good. There's lots of motion in the artwork and there's lots of emotion in the artwork and it makes the story work in spite of the heavy heavy wordage that's on almost every single page and uh the x-wing fights i mean they're 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 flying around they're zooming around the tie fighters are zooming around there's uh, you can feel tension. If you didn't know the end of the story, you'd be curious, where is this going? How is this going to work out? Uh, who's going to do what? And, and Darth Vader gets into his uh, TIE fighter, and it's bad. I mean, it is not a good situation. He is going to uh, create chaos and death, and he does. And that actually, um, not that he does this, but that actually brings up a problem I have with this particular uh, adaptation of things. Um, it's a it's a regular stormtrooper or a regular tie fighter that that takes out Porkins. And here's I have a couple problems with just these two panels. They Star Wars the movie for me doesn't have too many moments. It really doesn't. I I don't think I can't think of any moments that really take me out of it to say oh, well, that was clunky, or oh, well, that doesn't look great, or oh, that's kind of cheesy or hammy acting or whatever. Um, it, it just doesn't. The, the dialogue works the whole way through for me. Uh, it's not Shakespeare, but it's not meant to be, and it, it does the job. It tells the story, and, and the actors are, are serious enough and taking the job serious enough that it, it, it's good, although we'll I've got an interview I'm going to be reading here soon where um, he talks about Harrison Ford and some of the things that were happening on the, the the set as far as the actors taking it seriously or not. But um, Porkins gets attacked. And, and, you know, Porkins is one of the guys who gets killed in the Death Star attack. So me reading this now, it's no surprise that he's going to die. But as I'm watching it, uh, he gets shot by his, his X-Wing, gets shot and he, there's the dialogue goes, Porkins, do you read? Eject, eject, eject. What is he supposed to do? Eject into space? They don't have um, spacesuits on. They don't have any kind of, of uh, sealed suit. There is no ejecting in space. It's just not going to happen. So Porkins already, I mean... Poor guy's name. I mean, I have a Porkins action figure, actually. And he's just so dumpy. And he's just got a, you know, he's got a, well, he's actually similar to my build. But, um, so they, he's called Porkins already. But then uh, Biggs, he has an emotional reaction to this. And he's just, uh, he's thinking, and, and this is what he says. 
So long, piggy. <laughs> you will be avenged. Any seriousness, any emotion, any goodwill that I've given this up until this page just kind of flutters away a little bit. This this pulls me out. You know, this is one of those things. So long, piggy. So they have piggies a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. And okay, not, I mean, this is a nitpick, you know, the, the whole, do they have pigs there or not? Just calling him piggy. Uh, the guy's name is already Porkins. You know where he gets his name. His name is or, or gets his nickname. His name is Porkins, and he's fat, so they call him Piggy. <laughs> and not only that, they call him Piggy in a moment of crisis <laughs> and sorrow <laughs> and sadness. So long, Piggy. You will be avenged. So, like I said, minor nitpick there, but I'm going to go ahead and make the nit and pick it. Uh, another thing that <clears throat> just kind of didn't really... Uh, it didn't really connect with me the way they did this, and that is that, you know, in the movie, Ben just starts talking to Luke. Luke hears it and does the stuff and trusts, you know, his feelings and trusts Ben Kenobi, who is now... You know, speaking through the force or whatever, but um, in in this, <laughs> Luke Skywalker he, he loses um, the central computer. He, he's out of control, out of connection with them. So he's going to have to aim the torpedoes manually. It's not as accurate. But then Ben says, "No, trust your feelings, Luke." Huh? Who? Captions read: It's a young, old voice which sounds in his ears, a familiar voice, a voice at once calm, confident, contented. And reassuring. Ben! Ben Kenobi! Then maybe he wasn't killed by Darth Vader's lightsaber after all. Maybe he merged somehow with the Force. And he's here with me in spirit right now. Then maybe there's a chance for us at that. Even against Darth Vader and the Death Star. Just clunk exposition. Just clunky, clunky exposition. You don't have to explain all that stuff. And in fact, as we've learned from the prequel trilogies, the less you explain with some of that, the better. You know, let the mystery be there. Ben, Ben Kenobi, but but he's dead. How am I hearing it? You know, something like that. I mean, I wouldn't go with that dialogue exactly, but man, it's still better than what they had there. And one more final little nitpick. It just is so weird, and maybe it's weird because I know. I mean, I'm not I'm not steeped in steeped seeped. I'm not deep, heavy into the uh, uh, the the uh, ex- uh, the extended universe, the EU canon of Star Wars, and so maybe they've done something with this. Uh, but for me, what I do know that I don't think there's anything that has anything to do with this line of dialogue that Darth Vader says is he's getting ready to shoot Luke Skywalker out of the sky before Luke can take the shot to destroy the Death Star. And then his TIE fighter gets hit. It's a Millennium Falcon flying in. And Darth Vader says, as his ship is almost... uh, He hasn't gotten hit yet. uh, Because what's happened is uh, Millennium Falcon is going to come. It'll shoot one of the TIE fighters. It'll veer off and hit his. And when he sees this happen, as, as the other TIE fighter gets hit, he says, By the immortal gods of the Sith! 
by the immortal gods of the Sith, it just feels weird. And and I think it partly become comes from I don't think the Sith actually believe in gods. Mortal or otherwise. But anyway, those are minor nitpicks. Like I said, the artwork carries this. And it's not I mean it's not perfect, but it's pretty good. The Death Star's explosion looks so neat. It is cosmic comic storytelling at its best as far as like just that functional it's just an explosion in space and how are we going to make this look cool and it looks so neat and then Luke Skywalker's X-Wing fighter is kind of coming out from the center of it it looks so good what doesn't do so well there's then six boxes of die of captions six boxes explaining that no one looks directly at it because it's so bright and it'll give you permanent blindness and the universe seems filled for an instant with trillions of microscopic metal fragments and i just look at this page and think to myself let the page sit let the page rest or at the very least maybe on the previous page say and then the greatest technological achievement the empire has ever created after one photon torpedo, next page, just say, dies. Or something like that. But they don't. They don't let it sit. They, t- they let it go. Oh. But it's so good. I, I can forgive that. I'm just not interested in reading all of those captions. And then, of course, there is the uh, the end ceremony scene. Which, by the way... The end ceremony scene. This is one thing that the caption boxes actually give to me. And that is, why didn't Chewie get a medal? Now, I have two problems with the ceremony here at the end. First of all, Wedge, who actually survived the battle, you know, he didn't shoot and and destroy the Death Star, but he was there with Luke the entire time. Wedge should be up there getting a medal as well. And anyone else, like whoever's riding that Y-Wing or whatever. Han and Chewie, they show up at the last minute, shoot once, and they get a medal. So what about Wedge, who risked his life and almost died? He didn't, but he almost did. So if they give one to Luke, they should give one, and Han, they should give one to Wedge. And if they give one to Luke and Han, they should give one to Chewie. But it actually says here that, again, this is... Nice little expansion here. Chewbacca the Wookiee 2 will have his own medal, but he will have to put it on himself. Few space princesses are that tall. So there you have it. Why didn't he get a medal? Because Princess Leia it wasn't tall enough to put it over his head. There it is. I like it. It's simple. And I don't know if Roy Thomas was just having the same question that you know so many other people have why didn't chewy get a medal and he just decided you know what this, we'll explain it like this or if it was just something that was in the script i don't know i'm glad it's there that's kind of fun so then the final captions of the book it says what the future holds for these six daring souls only time and the space winds know but for today for now they are content. Next issue, a new adventure of the Star Warriors. And I am actually pretty excited.
about what this new adventure for the Star Warriors will be. We are getting to territory here I'm vaguely familiar with, but that I have never really explored. And this is honestly why I'm doing this series for this podcast, is to get into this new stuff and actually read through these comics that I wanted to read when I was a kid. And I'm excited about Star Wars right now. I know this stuff is not going to tie in to anything new they're doing with Star Wars from here until the end of whatever. I know. I don't care because I'm going to have fun. I'm already having fun. I'm going to have some more. So speaking of fun, I do want to uh, revisit then uh, Roy Thomas's article that he wrote uh, how I learned to stop worrying and love Star Wars with reservations for Alter Ego number 68. Because the art here is rushed. Yes. And it's cluttered. Yes. I mean, there's lots of panels on the page. It's crammed with story. Absolutely. Um, and Howard Chaikin, he is uh, credited as artist and storyteller. Roy Thomas is credited as a writer and editor. And then you have Rick Hoberg and Bill Ray, who are credited as embellishers. And I'm going to say right now, these guys are the heroes here. Now, if this issue had not looked good, it wouldn't have mattered. Star Wars was such a huge hit. Issue 6 of the Star Wars comic book is not going to cause anyone to say, I'm not going to read issue 7. If you were interested enough to read issue 6, you're probably going to read issue 7. You're not going to change your opinion on whether or not you're going to pick up these later stories because you want more Star Wars. I wanted more Star Wars. I know a lot of people did. That's why they did the comic book. That's why they did some of the tie-in novels. That's why they had uh, (laughs) the Star Wars Holiday Special. Less said about that, probably the better. But the bottom line is, I believe that Rick Hoberg and Bill Ray are the heroes for this issue. And they actually were involved in the article that Roy Thomas wrote. If you've listened to previous uh, episodes of this series, then you know that Roy Thomas wrote an article that was about all of his experiences with the Star Wars franchise as it was in its infancy. And then he also reached out to some of the artists and collaborators who worked on these first six issues with him. So one of them was Rick Hoberg. And Rick Hoberg, he was the uh, guy who finished the pencils. So he took these sketch outline stuff that Chaikin did and he turned it into finalized art. And so he wrote in to uh, Roy Thomas to give uh, talk about his experiences a little bit and he He said basically he was really excited because it was an early opportunity for him to contribute to the comic book adaptation of this movie that he liked. And he was a fanboy who loved Roy Thomas. And so this assignment then, he says, uh, I'm quoting now here, allowed for visits to Lucas's offices at Universal to acquire photo references of the props, characters, and backgrounds of Star Wars. I only went there a couple of times, but on one memorable visit, I was left waiting for an assistant to find the reference that I needed, and I was sitting with a young actor who I knew was portraying a space pirate named Han Solo in the movie. Harrison Ford was waiting around for a photo shoot or something, so we started talking, and I remember thinking, this guy is just a regular Joe. Uh, Carpenter, trying to establish his career as a professional actor, much like I was trying to make my way as a struggling cartoonist. He was very personable and more than willing to chat about Star Wars. 
I remember telling Harrison that how much I was looking forward to seeing this film, which he was starring in, and that I thought it might be a huge hit. He scoffed at this and told me he was sure it was just another B sci-fi film with terribly corny dialogue. He went on and on about acting in front of the blue screen, not knowing what they were supposed to be seeing. He continued on, relating that the only way he and the other group of novice actors portraying the heroes could keep any semblance of seriousness during the shoot was because of the presence of Alec Guinness. Harrison related that Guinness was a complete professional on set and that he and the other young actors, Hamill and Fisher, continually worried about making fools of themselves in front of this great thespian. So they followed his lead, trying to believe everything they were doing. Learning from a great master that acting is make-believe in which you really believe. Upon seeing the final film, one can see that having Guinness in the Kenobi role was a true stroke of genius on Lucas's part. Sir Alec not only created Obi-Wan, he helped create Luke, Leia, Han, and all the other characters in that galaxy long ago and far, far away. And so that's a little, you know, neat little sidebar but then you have uh bill ray goes by william i guess because that's the the way they list him here and he talks about how excited he was about getting this job as well to work on star wars uh, issue six he says this was a momentous week for rick and me getting the job from roy for rick to pencil over howard chaykin's layouts and myself to ink star wars number six was the moment that really got us into comics we love the movie and we're overjoyed to have a shot at the comic book chaykin's pencils were not even layouts and kudos to rick for doing the full job we had about five days to do the book and i was a slow inker trying my best to be as lovingly slick and detailed as dave stevens dave inked a few pages to help us and those are the highlights of the book as he redid them his as he redid them his meticulous way. I was so behind on my own end that even Rick inked a page or two, and my dad did some background headlining. After staying up for five days, we delivered it in person to Roy's Hollywood pad, confident that the kudos, confident of the kudos to come. We knew it was a good job under the circumstances. Roy answered the door in his bathrobe, hurriedly mumbled a thank you, and closed the door in our faces. That was pretty anticlimactic, but we didn't hold it against him. We were still happy and proud of the book. And so then Roy actually uh, has a a brief uh, response to that. He says, sorry about that, Bill. I should have been more gracious, knowing as I did of yours, Rick's, and Dave's heroic efforts. Maybe I just gotten up or had company of the female persuasion. Anyway, if I neglected to tell you at the time, you, Rick, and Dave did a superb job under trying circumstances. And so that's really nice there. I mean, I, it, obviously, Bill Ray doesn't hold anything against Roy Thomas. Uh, I can just picture that uh, that scene. And honestly, I would love to see a movie about the making of the Star Wars comic. I would love to see a movie about Roy Thomas and Howard Jake and working on this and just getting the job done. I doubt it will happen, but reading the article is a good consolation prize now roy thomas does have more to say about his experiences on star wars however uh that's gonna have to wait until issue seven because it talks a lot about issue seven he doesn't really get into much detail other than what we we see here about issue six the ending of that star wars uh movie storyline he does have a lot to say about his first couple of chapters of the comic book after the movie was done and some of the responses to that. But uh, for now, overall, I think this this thing works. And what I'm excited about here is, and I'm not sure when this episode is going to come out based on our uh, scheduling that we have right now, but 
I am really excited because there is a book coming out that is actually a remastered edition of the movie comic issues. Uh, remastered, when I, when I say that, the coloring is made to look more realistic, more like a modern coloring job. I don't think it changes anything with the captions or anything like that, but uh, it will be coming, and and I will probably do an episode about that, and uh, I, I don't know when this episode is going to come out. I'm thinking this episode is going to come out in early May, but I, I don't know if I'm going to be able to get it out before May the 4th, which is when that, uh, that volume comes out. The other thing is, right now, Star Wars comics, the Marvel Star Wars comics, they're on Marvel Unlimited. They just uploaded a ton of Star Wars stuff, and some of the Marvel, the classic Marvel comics are, are part of that. So if you want to read these things, it, it just became that much easier for you to do so. So uh, It's time to move on to crazy, though, because, well... I don't think it's too crazy, my reasons for doing it. However, I don't think it's also going to take very long to talk about it. (laughs) Crazy Magazine was basically Marvel's... um, uh, It was Marvel's Mad Magazine. And it was them trying to catch that Mad Magazine lightning in a bottle. And so what they did was they did movie parodies. They did all sorts of the same kind of things that Mad Magazine was doing. Um, The difference being the way I saw it in an interview with Steve Gerber was that he wanted to present uh, the idea that the people working on the magazine were actually insane. And so it had maybe more non sequiturs and stuff like that, whereas Mad Magazine was presenting, you know, jokes and and parodies. But um, Star Wars is was featured in this issue of of crazy magazine now crazy magazine ran from throughout the 70s into the early 80s so it would make sense in the late 70s with uh their issue number 32 which did come out then september 20th uh plenty of time for them to have seen the movie back when it came out have some time to write and draw a eight page parody of the movie, I imagine that the writer of the this parody got the chance to go and see it a few times. Uh, it made sense, and, and it may actually makes for a nice kind of cap to the coverage of the Star Wars Marvel adaptation, or it would, uh, assuming it's good. <laughs> so that's why I, I decided to include it. And uh, the cover has uh, Darth Vader, C-3PO, R2-D2, and then the, the crazy magazine mascot um, who's this kind of guy with a hat and wearing, kind of looks like yellow kid, only it's black clothes and no words on his, his, his robe or his shirt or whatever. And then there's Darth Vader and it says big new stamp out star Wars issue. And from what little I've read of crazy, I've seen that stamp out joke a couple times. So that must've been some sort of recurring gag for them as well. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. I, I say must have as if I know what I'm talking about. But it's a fairly standard parody. Uh, it's 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 harmless. It's not great. There's a couple moments, though, that are kind of funny. Um, and there's a whole lot of moments in it that aren't that funny. It's probably the kind of thing that if you were to read it and I were to read it and then we'd get together and talk about it, 
Um, my five laughs would be different than your five laughs. But um, star warts, I mean, that's that's the start right there. Star warts. Well, ha, ha, ha. That's, that's a funny, you know. And, and then it says, uh, take a whole bunch of mediocre actors, mix well with a hackneyed storyline and a couple hundred gaudy special effects sprinkled liberally with robots, aliens, and assorted spacecraft. And what do you get? No, not old Star Trek reruns Dumbo. Swallow that and you'll get star warts. And actually kind of echoing um, Harrison Ford's thoughts about the movie. The writer is Paul Cooperberg, and the artist is Alan Cooperberg. And I found that kind of interesting, actually. Paul Cooperberg ended up working on uh, artwork for later Star Wars comics, and he did a, a thing for Ray Thomas's article where he talked about the, the issue that he worked on and how he enjoyed it and, and that kind of thing. Um, but he talked about it as if it... Uh, as if that was the first thing he had done, and he didn't mention this at all. Of course, he didn't have a lot of room to mention this, and he may not even remember doing this. This may have just been one of those things, let's get it done for that crazy magazine, you know? Uh, so it features, you know, lots of puns. It features, you know, it's not R2-D2 and C-3PO, it's Jeep Chero 3 uh, instead of Jeep Cherokee, and Me Too U2, which isn't, that's not too bad. Princess La-di-da. And it's it's that kind of thing. That's the humor that kind of runs through this. Um, can't get Lord Death Waiter. He can't let him get his hands on the tapes, the secret tapes. Why not? Because his swens are all his hand, his palms are always sweaty, and he'll he'll wilt them out of shape. It's that kind of of humor, and you know it's it's not my thing on the best of days, honestly. <laughs> but that's not to say that there aren't. You know, I, I'm not amused by some of this. Um, Darth Vader's panel on his chest becomes a uh, number touchpad. Uh, at one point, uh, C-3PO's artwork keeps changing and his look keeps changing. At one point, he actually looks like Iron Man. Uh, when the stormtroopers come to Tatooine to investigate, some of them are wearing uh, bathing trunks, which is a gag that actually um, Lego Star Wars went ahead and... and did that as well. Uh, one of the jokes that I found really funny actually was that Luke is talking to his uncle. And he says, these are the two new droids I, I bought to work on our moisture farm. Uncle Ben, maybe they can tell us how to grow moisture. That that's a funny little, little, uh, observation. Uh, then when his uncle is talking to C-3PO to find out what his qualifications are, he says, we need someone who can work on intergalactic plow. I can work on intergalactic plow, plow, is the reply. We need someone who can speak the lang- our language. Pookie. I speak Pookie, he replies. We need someone who isn't lazy, someone who's not afraid of hard work 24 hours a day. I speak Pookie. You know, it, it's that kind of humor. And it's it's funny. And so reading this, I'm reading, you know, every other panel, there's something that's supposed to be funny that I'm not laughing at. Uh, but then in between those, the, oh, there's something a little bit, a little bit goofy here, a little fun. Not a whole lot. I mean, there's things like Obi-Wan Kenobi scares off the sand people with his body odor. Um, when, when the stormtroopers come, uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi, he says, you know, I'll use my mysterious power to get them to leave us alone. Simon says, act like a dog. Do it. And they start running around barking, and one of them actually lifts his leg and pees on the land speeder. Um, there's a whole lot of things where they make the dialogue just sound kind of... Like there's some sort of dialect that, you know, 
where they'll they'll replace vowels with other vowels. I didn't really understand what that was. One funny joke was uh, when Han Solo was flying away, they asked him, can we outrun the Imperial Space Fighters? And he says, are you kidding? I used to drag race on Sunset Boulevard. Kind of a reference to American Graffiti. Uh, But it all builds up to to an ending. Sorry, I'm shuffling the pages here. It all builds up to an ending where we reveal who Death Waiter is. Um, when they're on the Hurt Star, they're on the Hurt Star, and Death Waiter is going to use his ultimate torture on them to get the, the tapes, which is Lost in Space reruns. They hand over the tapes. He takes off his mask as they ask him what's so important about the tape. He says, this tape, why? It's the missing 18 minutes, and it's... Richard Nixon underneath. Ha, ha, ha. But if you don't trust anyone over 30, this is this is your magazine, I guess. <laughs> and so that's the end. Uh, it's Like I said, it's harmless. It's not great. It's not anything game-changing as far as parodies go. It's one of the first Star Wars parodies to come out, though, and so that there there is some sort of honor there. But all things considered, I'm never going to read this again. And I've already read it too many times for this podcast. Um, the first time I read it was enough then to go back, investigate, and evaluate. I'm done with this. So now it's time to move on to the next actual comic as we step away from Star Wars into something a little more grounded. Godzilla number five is called The Isle of Lost Monsters. It was written by Doug Mensch. Tom Sutton is the guest. Uh, last week was called the guest uh, artist. This week he's just the, the penciler. He is still a guest, even though they don't say that he is. Uh, next week, I think Herb Trimpey is scheduled to come back. But uh, he's inked by Klaus Jansen, who is the inker for Frank Miller when Frank Miller was getting started and doing some of the crazy new stuff that Frank Miller was trying to do. Klaus was right there helping him out, pushing him out there, and, and being that inker who's able to pull out from the pencils the the unique qualities that were just required. Uh, that's what inks, inkers do. They pull out the artwork that's in the pencils, and they present it. They enhance it rather than just uh, trace it, as, as the argument goes. Last issue, S.H.I.E.L.D. was... Protecting an island from Godzilla. The island was run by Dr. Demonicus, who now wants to play Godzilla versus S.H.I.E.L.D. against each other so that the one side will wear down the other side, and then Dr. Demonicus can come in and swoop in and get whoever wins because they'll already be weak. So, last issue felt very Godzilla ish. It was that had pop sci fi social commentary, uh, you know, had big monster fights, and just, you know, it's just cheesy enough to be good but not bad enough to be bad it was it was really solid godzilla it's what i would expect from marvel's godzilla from marvel universe godzilla this issue well let's find out the battle continues and as it goes agent dum dum dugan and gabe catch a glimpse of dr demonicus's other monsters and realize then that this island is probably not a regular, you know, base, uh, American base is what they keep calling it. Um, it's actually, there's, there's some problems here. And so Dr. Demonicus, he realizes that they have seen. And so he releases all of them. He releases Gilaron, 
Leprax and Centipore, which all sound fairly Godzilla-ish, not as much as the one from last issue, but they're close. One of them is a moth and could have been Mothra, except that I wonder if Toho didn't allow them to use any of those other monsters. So two of those monsters attack Godzilla. The moth attacks Dum Dum Dugan's copter as Gabe is hanging out of it. And so S.H.I.E.L.D. backs off now that they know that something else is going on here. They back off their attack from Godzilla. Godzilla takes on those two creatures. Gabe ends up actually in Dr. Demonicus's control room as he falls away from the helicopter and ends up in the base. And like I said, Dum Dum Dugan has to fight the, the moth from his helicopter. Also, the slaves are seeing this, the the Eskimo slaves, and they are rising up against their oppressors. So Gabe gets Dr. Demonicus to monologue about what his plan is, what's he, why is he doing this. It's a stalling technique that superheroes have learned to use, and it works well here. We get the backstory for Dr. Demonicus. He was contaminated during radio, radioactive experiments. He was a geneticist, and as a result of these these experiments, he lost his job he went crazy found out about this meteor that was out here in the middle of the ocean and so it's basically a perfect storm of like life events and motivations and all that leading him to go out find that meteor that would allow for his evil scheme the perfect evil scheme for exactly who he is and his particular skill set so he created monsters from their dma dna um, he built an army from society's rejects, quote-unquote, and he then enslaved a workforce of, again, quote-unquote, stupid Eskimos. And his plan is world domination. He gets distracted from his monologuing by seeing Godzilla take down one of the monsters, and during the distraction, Gabe attacks Dr. Demonicus, hits him against some controls, Godzilla attacks the moth, saving Dum Dum Dugan, and then looking down at him closely and sniffing and grinning, basically they find out he or they believe that he was inspecting the damage and just he he left then. And then the former masters must submit to the freed slaves. And Doctor Demonicus is sent off to prison, but as he goes, he's thinking up new schemes. Meanwhile, Dum Dum Dugan, well, he just can't accept that maybe, just maybe, Godzilla saved his life and spared it. So none of these monsters are from Toho, um, except for maybe the moth creature might have been related to to Mothra as far as the artistic inspiration. But that's okay. I mean, Godzilla fights random monsters all the time, and this felt, again, like we're trying to get into a, a Godzilla movie. The social commentary, you know, Godzilla movies to me usually have some sort of sometimes very overt social commentary, sometimes very, um, it, it's, it's a little more hidden, or it's very weak or thin, from these comics, which don't have much time to tell a story, I expect kind of a weak or thin uh, social commentary. But what I got from this one, I, I wonder if they were intending the social commentary that I am picking up here. Um, Dr. Demonicus, he's a racist. He is a racist. He um, tells Gabe when Gabe comes in, he says, freeze, black man. And 
then he you know he calls the Eskimos stupid Eskimos. He he says the same kind of thing to to Gabe again, and then you have him just enslaving an entire group of people. And of course, the slaves then rise up against their oppressors. And again, I, I just think that there's something trying to be said here that maybe doesn't quite make it to the surface. It might have been pushed down by editorial or it might have been the kind of thing where they had it in mind when they were doing the Marvel method and Doug Minch uh, did his outline and then Tom Sutton goes and draws it and then Doug Minch comes to, to put in the dialogue and realizes, oh, I can't get all the things I really wanted to get in. Um, Dr. Demonicus, though, he's a geneticist and he's interested in radioactive mutation. And uh, he – so I, I, I'm wondering, is he kind of – taking on that whole well, creating a new master race and then he uses it to create monsters uh, I, I don't know I, this just seems to be something that I can kind of see race and class both seem to be part of the central social commentary-ish thing that they're doing that doesn't really pay pay off or play out um, but Gabe and Dr. Demonicus's dialogue it definitely has racial undertones and, you know, Dr. Demonicus wants to bend knee and he enslaves people who are beneath him. And it just, it's there kind of, but I, I just don't know. Uh, beyond that, then you have um, him giving his backstory and, and he says, I, I give my name, but I'm not a fool. I'd be a fool to give my name to you. But then he gives him all this information about, I lost my job because of this. I had radiation poisoning. I, this, this. He gives enough information that you could possibly figure out who the guy was if he had a good computer or something. And obviously they didn't have Google back then. But I mean, this is S.H.I.E.L.D. we're talking about. They have giant computers that can do that kind of research. The other thing then, um, kind of, I guess, continuing in the, uh, at least the kind of the prejudice angle of things, is that Dum Dum Dugan continues his anti kaiju stance. Uh, he just doesn't accept, he can't accept that Godzilla might have had their best interests in mind. He might have been actually coming there rescuing the slaves. It's quite possible that was his motivation there. And then actually helping Dum Dum Dugan, rescuing him, and not doing anything more. Anyway, overall these two issues make for a, a fun mashup of Godzilla and S.H.I.E.L.D., and Marvel Universe, and it's it's a light read with a shallow, shallow, shallow message, if it even has one at all. But the art I'm enjoying, and honestly, if this is what we're getting out of our Godzilla comic, I want more. This is exactly the kind of thing I would expect and want from a comic book from the 70s featuring Godzilla and Marvel superheroes. So now we move on to find out if the next second half, the, 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 there's one more two-parter here that we're doing, and that is with the human fly. Part one was last month. Well, let's find out what part two is going to give us. So we're talking about human fly number four, with Rocky Mountain Nightmare. Bill Mantlo is the writer. Lee Elias is the artist. Rod Santiago is the inker. Denise Wall is letterer. George Bell does the colors. And Archie Goodwin is editing. I believe I judged last issue as dumb, but getting my interest. 
especially with the ending there. Uh, the plot last time was that Humanfly was sent in to rescue Alexandria, a girl with polio from Dr. Martinet, a supervillain. Uh, her father was the guy who sent Humanfly in, a politician named Dreer, who was set up in the issue as a clean-cut, clean-up Washington type of guy. So Humanfly totally walks up a mountain, climbs a mountain, that is, and fights off a robot condor or big giant bird or whatever. And when he finally gets to uh, Mr. Martinet, uh, he finds out that, well, Martinet claims to be Alexandria's father. And I'm wondering to myself, okay, are we looking at a, a My Two Dads type of situation with Paul Reiser and that other guy before Mad About You but after Aliens? Or is it a lie? Did, did one Is Dreer lying or is Martinet lying? Is Martinet crazy? Uh, what's going on here? So this issue picks up almost immediately afterward. And I'm hoping to find my answers, man. I'm hoping to find my answers. Human Fly, he's beaten unconscious, hitting the head with guns. Martinet then cl- calming his daughter down, calls her Angeline instead of Alexandria, which is her mother's name. And the girl says, why are you calling me my mommy's name? Meanwhile, uh, Ms. White, the reporter, and um, Arnie... Uh, uh, the human flies agent or PR guy, they visit Dreer in his mansion, but they find that there's armed men, armed guards and tanks. And they aren't there as moral support during Dreer's time of need. No, they are now hostages to ensure that human fly is going to be loyal when human fly returns because human fly might find out some things about Dreer that Dreer doesn't want him to know. Martinet and Dreer are not, political enemies they are munitions manufacturers and they are feuding against each other it's basically destro versus destro and they're both claiming to be the little girl's father so um arnie expresses outrage and drear has him then beaten down by the butt of a rifle knocked out uh these two guys martinet and drear seem to be two sides of the same coin i mean they both have an armed militia. They both order someone to be beat down with guns. Uh, yeah. Well, anyway, human fly escapes. Of course he does. And Alexandria sees Martinet react to the escape. And she also sees his costume. I don't know if this is for the first time or not, but she's scared. Not for the reason you'd think though, because she calls him father and she's scared that her father is doing something bad that he'll regret martinet then sends two panthers after human fly it's not as exciting as i was hoping but it is still a little bit exciting as they try to jump over or jump at human fly in a dark tunnel and he pops on a light on his pimp cane and ducks out of the way as they fly over him and smack their heads right into each other they're dazed they're confused uh, one runs away, the other one runs at Human Fly, and Human Fly must do something he has never done before. In Human Fly's words, this is it. Tabby's friend has run back into the tunnel, scared off by the light, but luck doesn't come in twos. I'm going to have to fight. Whap! I've never killed another living thing, man or animal, but it's either her or me. I... I'm sorry. He says that as the uh, cat flies out of the end of a tunnel, which I don't know if they were that close to the end of a tunnel, wouldn't there be more light? But anyway, the cat goes flying down and there are tanks coming up. 
Then he sees that there are these flying platforms and jets, and yes, the robot condor things are, are coming out. And so uh, it's full-on war. It is full-on war. Kidnapping Alexandria has pushed it from feud into war. Of course, human flag jumps into the fray. Martinet goes into battle on this armored platform thing with a gun. It reminds me of something that might have been a G.I. Joe toy, or at least on the G.I. Joe cartoon. The problem is, as he's going into battle to fight against his enemy, and they are now mortal enemies, not just business enemies, he has the girl in her wheelchair on the platform that's going into this battle. Uh, there's a splash page of the chaotic war and human fly course joins in the fray and causes Martinet to actually crash. And all, you know, his daughter is thrown from her chair, nearly killed, but not enough. You know, I mean, she's not, she's not hurt. Turns out that she's not hurt, but, um, she yells at Martinet and Dreer to stop fighting. And he calls them father, stepfather, help. Human Fly ends up being the one who helps them. The battle stops. Both of these guys are going to jail, which we kind of would imagine that would happen. But it's not said, but there's really no way around it. So we end up with this poor girl who has been kidnapped by her stepfather from her father. It turns out her mother was married to Dreer, the politician. Couldn't take it anymore, so she left Dreer, got married to Martinet the supervillain and the money that she brought in from her inheritance from her own family money, uh, corrupted Martinet when she died the you know, this little girl became a kind of a pawn in these two men's business feud or whatever you want to call it. Um, they also wanted her inheritance. I think there's some money things involved there, but bottom line is she now has lost both of them because they're stupid. And so maybe she's, I mean, is it better for you to lose two stupid fathers who are willing to go to war and bring her into the middle of the war? Uh, I mean, the politician, he's a weapons manufacturer who is actually ready to go to armed conflict against another weapons manufacturer, but he's running on the clean up Washington type of platform. And then you have, of course, you know, the other guy bringing an actual platform, a flying platform with his daughter on the back. I mean, this is ridiculous. These two men are not smart. So anyway, she's going to get the best health care that money can buy because she has, you know, inheritance from her mother or whatever. But she's not getting a happy ending. I mean, she's losing these two men who are really the only family she has that we know of. But there are a couple things going on here that kind of got me thinking. Yeah, I actually was thinking about this. And, and amidst the ridiculousness of this, first of all, Human Fly and his PR guy are both beaten with guns by weapons manufacturers giving the order. And I, okay, there's something to that. I mean, there's something going on here. And this is, then they go to war against each other. And I can't, can't help wondering, I mean, I mentioned already that, you know, don't trust anyone over 30. This feels almost like it's making, okay, it's obviously making some sort of anti-war statement. 
But the statement it's making is a little bit deeper than just, you know, war is bad, fighting is bad, you know, you should be good to each other, that kind of thing. Because this is a war waged by these two men, and who's caught in the middle? It's the daughter. This is a war waged by old people, but paid for by the young. And, and a little bit literally in, in the case of how, you know, they both had money that they were they were getting from from the, the woman who, who died. And I, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's completely stupid that you're going to go to war over your daughter, fully intending to kill another army and that other army's leader, and you do it bringing your daughter into the middle of the battle. Yeah, that's dumb. But at the same time, there's just this little nugget of something, and it's 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 not quite as thin as you know the kind of the racial maybe something's being said here. But if it is, it's not being said very well. In this one, it's maybe something a little more natural. It's maybe something a little more that it, it just kind of is a subconscious kind of thing. I don't know. I think I'm already putting a little too much uh, into this, but. Uh, anyway, in the letters page, there was one interesting letter. This is, these were letters that were responding to issue two, which I thought was completely stupid. And no one was saying that. But one thing that did happen was a guy get, is going to get a, a double no prize for writing in because he calls them out on calling Human Fly America's real-life superhero when actually Human Fly is Canadian. The real guy, the real human fly i mean this this is a concept where they are basing this on a real life stunt man that they're putting into then the marvel universe i mean it's basically the same thing as saying you know let's do an evil knievel comic book but it's set in the marvel universe or having kiss uh be in a comic book you know that's in the marvel universe or you know any number of, of things that they've done in the past that's what this is, is they're taking this guy who actually he had his own secret identity. He didn't let anyone know who he was. People have figured it out since then. But um, at the time, he was just trying to be this masked guy going around doing stunts and giving the money to charity. And then they have this comic book that comes out around him. Uh, so anyway, he was Canadian. And so they they accepted the the call out from the letter writer and promised a double no prize. That would come in the mail. So all that said, uh, I was hoping there'd be something more to the mystery that that wrapped me up from last time. Maybe say I want to hear, I want to see what's going to happen next. But what I ended up getting was this, you know, ridiculous but standard superhero type of story. It's big, goofy, and stupid but with a little bit of a message that's not completely ridiculous. I don't know. I don't know what I don't know what's going to happen next. Uh, something about the inferno, the human fly enters an inferno, but I don't know I don't know what to expect with issue number 5. But um whether I want to or not, I'm reading it and I'm enjoying myself as I'm reading these things even when they're bad so far. I haven't read anything that just kind of wasn't fun at least with issue two i got to have some fun ragging on it issue four you know what i'm surprised that there's a little bit of meat there that got me thinking about war and about how war is paid for and about how it's the young who pay for the war whether it's they're paying for it afterward or they're paying for it with their lives 
I mean, that daughter is brought into the battle by this man who is causing her to enter into a conflict she is not at all wanting to be a part of. And I can't help thinking about in the 70s here, is this some sort of statement about the draft? I don't know. Well, honestly, maybe it is me reading a little bit too much into it. So let's move on to our last book, and then we'll take a look at the uh, ads and and other pages like that. John Carter, Warlord of Mars, issue number seven. The title is Deja Thoris Lives. Marv Wolfman is the writer-editor. Gil Kane and Tom Sutton, illustrators. Irv Watanabe, letterer. And M&M Wolfman, colorists. I don't know what that means. M&M Wolfman. M of M, maybe? No, it's M and M. So Marv might have been working here as a colorist. Anyway, uh, this issue... Well, last issue left off. Basically, uh, John Carter has come home after being accused of kidnapping the princess, Dejah Thoris. He has killed the only man who actually knows where the princess is, but he, when he was in the city, people were turned against him, and they chased him down. There are some battles and stuff like that. He ends up rescuing and saving a bunch of uh, unborn uh, children who are in uh, incubation chambers, and now he lays in bed dying, bleeding, and it's not looking good. And as I'm starting to read this, I'm still wondering from last time, how is he going to find Dejah Thoris? Because he doesn't know where Dejah Thoris is. The only person who does know where Dejah Thoris is, is dead. That's the man with the robot arm. Well, Sola is uh, a giant green creature, you know, the, the, the Martian guys with the forearms, that kind of thing. Well, she is worried about John Carter, and she asks the doctor can we do anything? Is there any hope for him? Should I pray for him? And the doctor has an interesting piece of advice. Basically, he says only death renders hope futile. So she'll pray for his life because he's done so much for her and for her father, Tars Tarkas. Meanwhile, John Carter keeps mumbling about Dejah Thoris. We turn and we find Dejah Thoris. We are with her now. We haven't seen her since, what, issue one, issue two? We're finally back to her, and she's getting smacked around by another woman. And this other woman, she is not happy. She is jealous. But there was a man who was assigned to Dejah Thoris as a guard who says, you know, come with me. Don't worry about her. She's You're, you're above her. You're a princess. You're better than her. And he starts talking about his background. His background is that he once was a soldier for Dejah Thoris's father. But he wasn't he wasn't a good fit and he refused orders and that kind of thing. And so what we end up with is him just he brings her into a banquet and he's trying to be charming, but she comes into the banquet and she realizes there are red men, which is what they are. There are green, which is what Tars Tarkas is, and there are white and black and yellow. And she asks, what is this? What is going on here? What is the Council of Five? And of course, now I'm thinking to myself, what in the world is going on here? These five races, that must be Council of Five? 
five races, and he says that it's a society. It's a society dedicated to returning Barsoom to its former glory. It's composed of members of all five races. And there's this mythology stuff that's coming up that I'm not aware of because I have read some of the John Carter stuff, but not all of it, and it's been a long, long time. And I enjoyed it, but I didn't really get into it as like a super fan that I want to know all the minutiae and details and that kind of thing. Uh, he says, I said five races, princess. The, the, the blacks and the yellows are not merely legends, you see, but you'll learn all that soon enough. Well, then the, the woman who is jealous spills some soup on Deja Thora, so she has to conveniently be taken away to go and bathe and get the soup washed off of her. He goes with her, of course, because he's been assigned to her. So after her bath, uh, as they are walking away, she starts asking questions, finding out things about the council and what their motivations are. They want to resume the former glory that Barsoom once had, and that will mean maybe you know, calling out some of the population, decreasing the population so that the strong can have their, all the resources they need. And then she starts playing him. And she, she she's going to go into the room where she's staying. She doesn't want him to leave. And he says, ah, oh, you've been away from your husband for so long. You need, you know, someone like me. And so she starts, again, asking him questions. And he slaps her. He slaps her because... He realizes he's being played. And then he decides, you know what? Doesn't matter. I'm going to love you the way a man loves a woman. So she takes his dagger and stabs him in the back with it. And then she takes his blaster and runs away. And as he's, as she's running away, she's seen by a couple people. But she knows she doesn't have time. She ends up hiding in a room with the woman who was jealous of her. They switch clothes, which we, which means the woman has, um, I don't know what you call the little sash thing that hangs from the waist that kind of hangs between the legs. Um, and then there's the, the bra thing that she's wearing. So she's now wearing green instead of red. She sends that other woman, makes her run down the hall, and the guards go after her and kill her. This gives her time to make an escape, get into a spaceship. And she's doing all this stuff, and I'm just I'm pumping my fist. But I'm going to save uh, some of the examination until, until later here. But anyway, they go and they attack the, the factory, the air factory, the atmosphere factory. And as they are attacking the atmosphere factory... Um, the people from Helium, they're, they're going and they're going to stop the attack. And so there's a war over the city. And uh, one of the ships from the bad guys starts attacking other ships from the bad guys. Well, guess what? It's Deja Thoris. She reveals herself to her father. Communications end up going back to the city. John Carter finds out she's still alive. He jumps into a flying ship, takes his, uh, his pet, Wula, and they go off because he's going to join his wife in battle. And join her, he does. Of course, as the atmosphere starts to thin from the atmosphere machine not being able to churn out as, as you know the, the, the air that everyone needs to breathe, uh, Deja Thoris is basically fighting alone because she has air masks. The bad guys are outfitted with air masks that they need. The good guys are not. So John Carter, he gets an air mask. He jumps into the battle. We get a couple pages, just two. The last two pages of the book, John Carter swinging his sword, f- 
fighting back to back with Deja Thoris, who's shooting and shooting and shooting. He fights, and then finally the battle is over, and she stops him. She puts her hand on his shoulder, and then we get a nice silhouette of the two of them standing together with a silhouette of a whole bunch of dead bad guys. And then they remove their masks, and they kiss. Kissed her as I never have before. We were together again, and there was nothing more I could ask for than to stand alive with the incomparable Dejah Thoris in my arms. You know, last issue, I was wondering to myself, okay, how is he going to do this? How is he going to find her? And I was ready for this issue to just be about him investigating and finding out where she ended up. And what did I get? I got something so much better. Dejah Thoris, she totally just kicks butt gets the bad guys i mean there she's out of there she escapes herself and not only does she escape on her own she thwarts the invading fleet coming in to take down the atmosphere factory now some bombs do go off and the atmosphere factory does take damage but i'm i'm reading this and i'm expecting because i haven't seen her since the beginning I'm expecting this to be another John Carter story, him off trying to find her. And this would be him traveling out there, maybe, you know, grabbing people and tell me where she is, if you, you know, and and just giving people the strong arm or whatever. But no, no, Deja Thoris is the hero here. She's the one who, she does all of the prime action. She pushes everything forward, and it's her choosing to do so. This is not at all what I was, what I was expecting. Uh, but on the same token, it was what I wanted. I just didn't know it was what I wanted. I've been waiting to hear from her and see her. I thought she was sitting in a cell somewhere. Now, the other thing that this issue does is it is it gives us a bunch of mythology stuff. What is this council that they've been talking about? Uh, they they've been talking about it for the last you know six five issues. What is this council of five? Well. We're finding out a little bit here that it's the five races, and two of the races are races that were considered legendary, and now they're back. This is this issue of John Carter, Warlord of Mars, is that episode that happens a couple times a season, basically during sweeps time, where they have a little bit more budget, they give you more action, more special effects, they give you more revelations, and they also give you along with that a satisfying story and characters that you like doing things you aren't expecting this episode is it's similar to you know like the uh the winter soldier tie-in episode of agents of shield where everything changes afterward this for me was an awesome series all of a sudden went from, hey, this is so good, I'm giving it a 8.5, it jumped up to a 9. And, okay, how many issues in are we? What, seven? Seven issues in? Like I said, I have gotten my money worth with this. I expect there will be more like this. I don't know if it can maintain this level of quality for the entire run, but it only has to maintain it for, you know, a little bit longer, and I'll this... I'll, I'll consider it fully paid for uh, since I got a super great deal on this omnibus. But, man, this is a good, good tale. I'm excited for the next one. 
And like I have said before, I cannot recommend John Carter, Warlord of Mars by Marvel highly enough if you really enjoy high fantasy and sci-fi fantasy. This is just good stuff in comic book form. Marv Wolfman, I know he's a great writer. He's done some of the biggest comic book events of all time. Crisis on Infinite Earths. I mean, come on. This here, though, it's just exciting. And it's unexpected. And even though I know, you know, the idea is this takes place in between two chapters in the first Warlord of Mars book, A Princess of Mars. You know what? It doesn't matter that I know John Carter or Dejah Thoris and Tars Tarkas are going to come out of it alive. I want to know how. And it's exciting. It's exciting. So now it's time to turn our attention to the bullpen bulletin, and then uh, it will we'll be done with this episode of Comic Book Time Machine. And there's really not a lot to report, actually, from the bullpen bulletin. The ads are all pretty standard. There was nothing that really stuck out to me. Uh, the hostess ad is still that stupid one with the lawyer sphinx guy. He's wearing green, he's got the wings, and he's like he's a legal eagle i think is is the joke or whatever and yeah, whatever um i'd like to get a new hostess ad come on man next month i'm hoping for something new we'll see although in the actual marvel's bullpen bulletin it does mention that roy thomas has more tv movie deals coming like star wars and that that's reminding me i don't know exactly what's coming next i do know titles that i have purchased i'm just not sure when they come up in my reading order here uh until i pull the polybag from the box but uh i do know of some possibilities of what that could be and so that little blurb that's for me that blurb right there is specifically for hey if you like our licensed sci-fi star wars you're gonna like some of this other stuff We'll see. We'll see. Uh, there's also a notice that um, the Marvel magazine, the fan magazine, Foom, Friends of Old Marvel, uh, they're going to do an Egg Rice Burroughs issue, which that, inform- that, that stuff, the interview with Marv Wolfman is actually in the John Carter omnibus, and so I'm going to read that as part of the, the next month's coverage. But there's really nothing else that, that real special. Special, and I already talked about the the double no prize that's going out to the the writer about the Canadian human fly thing. But I want to thank you once again for listening. Then, and wanted to remind you that you can find us on Twitter where we are Comic Time, and you can also find us on Facebook. Please like us on Facebook. We'll announce new episodes there. It's uh, Facebook.com/slash Comic Book Time Machine. You can find me online at benavery.com. You can find the Comic Book Time Machine online at comicbooktimemachine.com. And, you know, we do this because we enjoy reading these comics and we enjoy talking about comics. And so, really, I've just spent a whole you know hour and 20-some minutes just talking to you about stuff that I'm really enjoying. I would like to know if this is stuff that you are enjoying. I would like to know if you have any memories of this stuff or if you're led to go and and maybe pick some of these stuff out. I I don't know, but we'd love to hear from you. And I do actually have some uh, listener feedback uh, for next, next episode. That's actually uh, someone who read ahead of me with human fly, uh, human fly number five. And so 
I'm excited to finally be able to read that and know what he's talking about. He sent it in after I covered issue number two, and I didn't really know what what was going on with the plot from issue number five. So I'm excited to read the email again, actually knowing what he's referring to. So until next time, everyone, thank you again for listening, and Godspeed.